we're really going to be in uncharted waters when that happens, right? Because it's really going to be the first time that this has ever happened, right? That you went from a state-by-state, you know, industry to a a national industry. Like, whenever that does happen and whatever form that takes, it's going to be completely new. So I'm sure there's going to be disruption. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I'm Brian Fields, and with me is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Keith Hoffman, CEO of Engager Brand. Keith, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Side diving. Kellen, how are you? Doing really good. Excited to talk to another West Coaster and learn about the California market as much as we can. Yeah. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. Yes, Keith is a West Coaster, but he does have roots on the East Coast like many of our guests have. So I, I would say that has to be another draw. So Keith, for our listeners and unfamiliar about you, can you share a little background about yourself? Absolutely. So yeah, I did get my start uh, in my career working in the music industry in New York. And so I did that for many years. Got my start doing, I used to manage bands. I did music supervision for films. And my very first job in sort of the traditional industry, I was working for this company called Columbia House, which is predates probably you guys, but it was like the early like mail order uh, music company where pre-internet, like it was the only way in a lot of places in this country, you could actually get your music that wasn't being sold out of like your local Walmart, you know? So And then I kind of got involved in the transition into digital, and I was one of the early digital music guys. So I helped launch the iTunes Music Store for BMG and then Sony BMG, all the different early sort of um, subscription services. And honestly, that really sort of set me up very well to come out to LA and work in the cannabis industry because it's very similar, very disruptive, very like no one knows the rules sometimes. And you have to be very sort of, you have to be able to adapt on the fly. And that's kind of what it was in the early digital music days. Yeah. So moved out here to LA originally to kind of work in mobile and do, I built out a mobile content studio, did a lot of early stuff in social media, and then sort of found my way into cannabis about seven years ago, started my first company that was a media focused company. And from there, started to create brands. And now I have my own kind of portfolio of music-focused cannabis brands. So when you were kind of getting started in this space, was cannabis a big part of your life? Or was it something that just kind of, you just kind of migrated into through experiences and through your location? Well, so I have, you know, I have a long history with the plant. I went to school at the University of Michigan. And like when I went to school there, it was like literally it was a $5 ticket for getting caught smoking weed and like a $50 ticket for getting caught with open alcohol. So as a result, there was a lot of cannabis consumption going on in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, got to be, become very familiar with the plant when I was there. They have this thing every year called the Hash Bash, which is a big event that's on in the middle of campus. And it's just kind of always been one of those kind of, for the Midwest, one of those kind of hubs for cannabis. So then, you know, obviously working in the music industry, a lot of cannabis consumption going on there as well. So yeah, when I kind of came out to LA and things were starting to develop, you know, there was already a 
you know, when I was out here, a robust medical market. And then once we started to kind of see the writing on the wall that like, okay, this is probably going to uh, go recreational here, you know, adult use, because we started my media company at the beginning of 2015. So it was before adult use had 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 kicked in, which is 2018. But yeah, it's all kind of like, it's just, it's all natural, right? It's like cannabis and music. It's just, they all kind of, you know. Why do you think that cannabis and music just make such a good pairing and they're just so natural together? What's your thoughts on that, Akiva? Like dating back to the early, like times of jazz music, you know, all the early jazz musicians were, were smoking, you know, and really it helped them with their creativity. And some of the greatest like musical works of our time certainly were enhanced by the fact that in the studio, the musicians were consuming cannabis. So, you know, and like, let's face it, like you go to a concert, chances are, you know, there's billows of smoke, you know, kind of everywhere. And so it's just kind of a natural, I think it's just, it's a sensory enhancer. It's just, they go really well together, whether it's on the creative side or whether it's on the experience side um it's just a natural fit let's talk about your media company when you first got started in the space was it one that it took up traction pretty quickly or or it it took a little more time and you kind of had to evolve the business plan over time it was definitely hard early on when we started in early 2015 we so we had a website and then we had a video production uh capabilities and first of all, it was really hard to raise money at that time. And then second of all, it was really hard to convince cannabis companies that they should spend money to create broadcast quality video content. And because at that time, like most of the video content were like guys ripping bong, bong hits on YouTube, you know, uh, or showing people how to do dabs, you know, and it was pretty low end content. So like people were like, oh yeah, my buddy's got a video camera. He can just do the video for us. And so there was a lot of education where it was like, you know, hey guys, like we need to create like a better quality content. And what started to help us was the fact that because most cannabis companies and even to this day can't really advertise the way that you know any other business can. We were able to come up with ways to integrate. We created programs where the cannabis services and products could be integrated into the shows. But where we had to start to evolve was that, so we'd create this great video content, and then it was really hard to be able to drive people to be able to see it because same issues. Can't run Facebook ads, can't, you know, do, you know, Google ad buys for this content. So we create, we ended up having to create the first multi-platform video network for cannabis. And so we were able to create that and we were on Apple TV, Amazon, Roku TV. We were on about 14 different platforms. So we were kind of early pioneers when it came to like creating sort of professional you know, content in the industry. And uh, it was not easy at all early on. Um, it became a lot easier when what started to become what was called like a, the green rush, you know, which was like 2017, 2018. That's when we raised all of our money. And that's when like things were kind of you know, sort of really like going, going nuts. But leading into that, you know, we were early and it was, it was hard. Take us through some of those conversations that you're having in the early days, trying to get this idea off the ground. 
So which converse, conversations with potential customers or conversations with, uh, with potential investors? Let's say with investors first. And then what changed, do you think? Was it just the green rush in the media? And then the, did they start approaching you? And how did that whole um, situation kind of adapt over from 2016 to 2018? Yeah, so early on with the investors, it was like, well, there's already high times. So why do we need... Uh, why do they... Why do we need another media company in in cannabis? So our whole thing was like, well, look, High Times is really focused. And you know, at this time, the, our whole thesis for why we wanted to create the company it was called Prohibited was the name of the the company um, and the, and the website. And uh, the reason we wanted to to create it was when we took a look at what was going on in the market at that time. The vast majority of content that was being created was being created for like about 10% of the audience. And that 10% were like the daily, like heavy consumers, the dabbers, the like stoner bros, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like, but like, if you look at like consumers, like there's tons of people that consume cannabis that don't fit into that demographic, right? That which is like the other 90%. And so what we had to convince investors was like, look, we're going to create content that that 10% is going to, you know, they may like some of it, but our focus is going to be on the other 90% because what a great opportunity is this. It's like no one is doing anything for this other audience, whether it be housewives or elderly or professionals of, you know, different sorts where it's like, you know, hey, let's figure out how to bridge the bridge the gap from sort of this sort of legacy industry to a more sort of mainstream audience. and. Over time, it became clear that this was like the way things were going. Look, a lot of things started to change because look, a lot of different states started to go legal. And then, you know, California went, you know, recreational and then Canada went legal. So all those things kind of happening. And that's when sort of that triggered the sort of what we called at the time, the green rush, right? And a lot of that money was triggered out of the Canadian public markets, right? Because all those Canadian companies were funded by, they all went public. And if you wanted to invest in cannabis and you were just like a a regular investor, the only way that you could do that was to go and invest into these, these Canadian companies. And so we reaped the benefit of that. And then it all, the bottom fell out in 2019 when like kind of it was like, the emperor wears no clothes. Like it was like, well, wait a minute, these Canadian companies actually aren't making money yet. And in fact, they can only still sell to Canadians. And you know what? Canada is actually not that big of a country, you know, and there's not that many consumers uh, in Canada. And it was like, okay, these these companies are greatly overvalued. And then there were some bad actors that that were involved and, you know, some bad business practices and some some different things. So then, yeah, and then that all happened. And then we went into COVID. And so honestly, we're still starting to kind of come out of this, of like what it's going to end up being um, with this next sort of iteration of the cannabis industry is still somewhat being determined right now. Yeah, the industry is still in its infancy stage. And I would wonder if it still hasn't established what a real normal is for how an industry operates, because it is still so new. And as you were saying, Keith, is that it was one way for a little bit and then the world evolved and then COVID happened and then it was another way and the world evolved. And we still yet haven't seen what the, the future landscape will hold, which means disruptors like yourself are led to more and more challenges. So I'm interested in kind of 
diagnosing some of those. So obviously coming from the music background and your skilled expertise there and then applying it to the cannabis industry is layered with different challenges outside of capital and kind of distribution aspects. What other challenges did you see that were similar that you had to overcome from, let's say, the music cannabis background? Well, there were a lot more challenges that were unique to this industry than there were similar. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing for people that are coming in from the outside, like where it's like, oh my God, I can't use my same toolkit, you know, uh, for this industry. You know, what do you mean I can't advertise on Instagram? You know, what do you mean I can't talk about this, that, or the other? So, you know, for us, and we're creating, you know, essentially, you know, we're creating brands, right? And driving demand for those brands. Where I I did find similarities were like, you know, look, because we're focused on music, like we know where this audience is, right? They're They're at the shows, they're at the festivals. And so we, I leveraged my, my background in doing a lot of live event, you know, activations and promotions and through my uh, connections with promoters and managers and agents, we're able to go and activate at festivals and concerts directly to the audience there, which right now is pretty unique because most cannabis like brands are kind of like I almost call it like they're 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 marketing within the cannabis bubble, right? Like every like there's the there's these events and there's these sites and there's things that are just like all for kind of the cannabis, you know, audience. But as you guys know, like probably I would venture most cannabis consumers don't necessarily just live in that world, right? It, it, cannabis is just, it's just another aspect of, of their lifestyle and what, the, and what they do. So, you know, I think that what we're going to start to see more and more of, um, and we're trying to lead the way here, is going out and marketing to these audiences outside of that cannabis bubble, right? And so for us, that's going directly to the shows, to the festivals. We set up booths. We do activations there. We do a lot of ticket giveaways um, with dispensary partners um, on our website. We do a lot of stuff with bands where we do collabs with artists and things like that. So I think there are some similarities from my music industry days that I'm able to tap into. And then there's a lot of just as anything that touches cannabis, there's always the things that are completely unique, the roadblocks that you just have to deal with on a regular basis as well. Do you think that some of the bands that have kind of launched their own brand haven't created as much value as you would anticipate just based on the natural pairing of cannabis and music? I mean, I'm thinking like Willie Nelson and the Marley family. You've kind of seen a couple of these iterations of using some of these bigger uh, band's names to try to launch a brand in the cannabis space. And it just hasn't resonated and it hasn't created the same value. I think that a lot of people anticipated when you see other uh, celebrities kind of enter other industries. What are your thoughts on that? And there's a lot of inherent challenges, right? So, I mean, I'd say like, look, at least the two that you mentioned still exist, you know, they like, there's been like, so, so it, they, they would be considered the success stories, actually, right. uh, you know, um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot more what you see is you see it, particularly in, in rap where like, you know, someone comes in, whether it's vanity, they want to, they want to have their own strain or whether it's, you know, more often than not, they think they're going to be able to come in and make a quick buck. 
And the reality is in this industry, it's just, it's really hard to build a brand, you know? Um, and so in order to really do it in a way that's going to be kind of, that's going to be lasting is you've got to come in. And if you're an artist or a band, then you've really got to actively be promoting it and, and out there working it. So I would say that the brands that have been successful from a celebrity standpoint have been like, you know, Leafs by Snoop, you know, because Snoop's outliving it. Insane by um, Be Real. Um, you know, he's out there. He's living it. Um, also, I will say that both those brands, by the way, don't have the band's name in the brand also, you know? So it's like, you know, and I think that's important too. It's like, because the audience is kind of fickle. Like, so at my, my, my agency, so we ended up at my last company, we ended up helping other companies incubate their brands. We had, we ended up creating sort of an, an, an agency. And one of the brands that we helped create was for a brand called 22 Red. And 22 Red was, um, and still is, a brand that was created by Shavo from the band System of the Down. And one of the things that we had talked about early on with them was the importance of creating this as a standalone brand and not having it be just Shavo's weed, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, Shavo's strength. It's like, because... First of all, the audience kind of like is a lot more sophisticated, I think, than than a lot of the, these these bands like give them credit for. And as a result, like they can see through it. Like so, like it's like if they feel like someone's just slapping their name on it, it's like they're like that doesn't feel right. Or they'll go out and try it once, and then chances are because it's celebrity endorsed it's marked up as a premium so that the artist gets their cut. So it's like, wait a minute, but what I just paid, I could pay less, you know, and get just as good or better, you know, over here. So like, why am I going to pay this just to get my, the celebrity's name on it? It just doesn't make sense. So I think there's a lot of reasons for why it hasn't worked. But at the end of the day, I think it comes down to ultimately the brands that will have any affiliation with an artist that work are going to be the ones where the artist integrates it in everything that they're doing. They're actively out there promoting it. They're, they're involved with it. And I think that's where you run into the issue with like some of these, like Marley, it's like, you know, it's an estate, you know? So it's like, even though it feels like that should have worked, it's like, don't really authentically have anyone out there actively sort of working it, you know, because obviously, you know, Bob Marley's not around to be able to do that. And, and even with Willie Nelson, like, you know, Willie's, Willie's not, you know, he's no spring chicken right now. You know, he's like not exactly out there, you know, actively working things. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, like, I think there's a lot of challenges and like, but you know, it's to your point though, I think it's, it is correct. Like there really haven't been to this state, any super meaningful, like quote unquote celebrity brands. No. There's a there's a trust factor too, and I think you described it perfectly. That when consumers go in and they see the likeness of a celebrity on it, maybe they try it one time. But if the product doesn't adhere to what their expectations are, they'll likely tell their friends, and that'll be the end of that product. And if that influencer per se is not including it in their lifestyle, it kind of loses its flair, right? Maybe there's like a big push, but you buy a PR firm. But after that, 
The big leverage, because you don't have your normal toolbox, is the influencer's platform on social media, right? Creating content around it, constantly showing his fan base the products and integrating into their lifestyle. So if who is somebody that can come in from the music space or an actor or an athlete that you think can, let's say, take it to the new level from an influencer partnership standpoint to really put their name on a brand to kind of establish themselves, let's say, as an incredible, incredible individual? Look, I don't know necessarily like who I would say who isn't already in because anyone who's kind of a natural is already doing something like you could argue how well they're doing it. Um, But look, I I think there is one other sort of big elephant in the room here, which is just the fact that whether you're building a celebrity brand or any brand, the fact that you as a brand, you know, you don't, you're not, the cultivator, right? You're you're not the manufacturer, and you're in a in a country that is has no interstate commerce, right? So, in order to truly like build, like in any other industry, like if you were going to come and do a celebrity endorsed brand, like you would do a huge national campaign, right? Well, you can't do that in this industry, right? And so it's it's really challenging, right? Because like, okay, well, you have to kind of pick a state to start with, right? And then everyone seems to pick California. And then California is, I think there's something like 4,000 brands in California right now oh, yeah. fighting to get on into like a thousand shops, right? So it's just, it's a crowded market here, you know? And then on top of that, you don't control, ultimately control the the end product, you know. I mean, unless you have really good um, quality, you know, control, which is something that's very important to us, is that we make sure that we build into all of our SPs for everything. But like, for instance, we're 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 going into Michigan next. It's going to be our next state, and we're in the process now of like making sure it's like you can't have the exact same product that we have here in California and Michigan. It's just impossible because you can't, you can't ship over, you know, state lines. So all we can focus on, and this is the same thing that a celebrity, you know, brand can focus on. It's just making sure that it's the same outcome, you know, like the same experience and it's the same basic quality and the same, you know, because otherwise you're going to have this, this issue where, yeah, to your point, like people are going to try it once. And if it doesn't match with what they're expecting, you get one shot at a first impression, right? And and if it doesn't work, then you're out of luck and you got to, you know, you might as well hang it up and, and try try again with something else because you're not going to get another chance. You mentioned that your guys' products won't be the same in Michigan, but it'll hopefully create the same experience. Is this kind of comparable to how... Coca-Cola tastes different in Mexico than it does in the United States. Would that be very much similar? I I think that's, that's that's a perfect example. And I've used it before because yeah, you, you know, there's Coke, there's McDonald's, like country by country, like the source material, like the source materials are different in these different countries. So there's going to be slight nuances and it's kind of similar in, in cannabis here when you go state to state. Like, let's face it, even if you can get the same exact genetics and the same exact seeds, it's going to be a different, you know, it's going to be slightly different soil, slightly different growing conditions. Like, there's no way to exactly replicate. So all you can try to do is to make sure that the brand promise is comes through, right? Of whatever that brand is, 
and that um, that the products adhere to that to the best of your abilities. And it's it's just one of those underlying challenges, you know, that we we have in this industry, right? It's just like any of the multi, you know, we're starting to see more and more multi-state brands are starting to roll out. Is uh, it's it's something that we all have to deal with, you know. It's there's no and there's no easy answer to it, honestly, you know. And in some ways, you kind of have to embrace it. Like some people like Mexican Coke better than you know the. the, the <laughs> Okay, so I think there's any um, like potential harm that could come from a brand, say in five years when um, interstate commerce maybe does open up, and they're like, "I've been buying this one pre-roll for five years in Michigan, and all of a sudden now I go to California and buy the same thing, and it's a completely different product." Do you see any like issues with brands um, once interstate commerce does come online, hopefully in our lifetime? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, our federal government certainly hasn't been doing us any favors. I mean, I've been in this now for almost eight years in cannabis, Damn. and we haven't made, any, any ground, made up any ground on the federal level. We're approaching 10 years of legal cannabis in Colorado. 10 years. They're, they're talking about it now, so that has to be some semblance of progress. What? They're talking about it. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating, that's for sure, but... You know, getting back to your your original question, I mean, look, we're really going to be in uncharted waters when that happens, right? Because it's really going to be the first time that this has ever happened, right? That you went from a state-by-state, you know, industry to a a national industry. Like, whenever that does happen in whatever form that takes, it's going to be completely new. So... I'm sure there's going to be disruption, right? Like, because what was working for whether it was like the supply chains or whether it's the end consumer, like the products themselves that they're used to, things are going to change when, 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 when it does go federally legal. Um, ultimately, it'll all work out and it's ultimately going to be better for everyone. It's going to be better for the industry. It's going to be better for consumers. You know, it's all, you know, Obviously, it's going to be you know a, a more optimal experience when you can have consistency, you know, um, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel state by state. I mean, that's just crazy, right? I mean, it's just wow. It's <laughs> wild. I mean, we're talking about the product. We haven't even mentioned like the packaging has to be different. <laughs> it's wild, right? Like, I was just talking to someone in Ohio the other day, and I had no idea, but Ohio apparently has their they have completely different package sizes for everything. Like, so if you want to go into Ohio, like you can't even like use the same because they have different weight, a different weight system there that they use. So I'm like, really? So yeah, it's just it's just crazy. But to, to kind of push back a little bit though, I, I think it's so important for the brands now to to do things the right way because they have such an early head start. And with new states coming online, specifically here in New York, these consumers that go in for the first time are experiencing, you know, legal cannabis, they're looking for a product to associate with because right, all it takes is that one experience where you said, I grabbed this product, I loved it, and then likely would go back a second and third time. So I think First mover's advantage is so huge now. And I think you see conversations like that, you know, happening where the big MSOs are a little more frustrated with the pace of the way they're opening up the licenses here in New York. But in California, right, it's a it's a fight for the shelf. So I'm wondering now from a branding perspective, how can companies like yourself help position these brands to move forward to do things the right way, to educate the consumer so that they understand what they're purchasing and they can build that sort of trust factors in the future? 
Well, for us, I think we're a little unique in our approach because, you know, we're going to, when we go to New York, you know, we're going to take the same approach. We're going to go to the, the concerts and the festivals and we're going to go out, you know, because for us, we have a very specific target audience that we're going after. And, you know, there's 74 million um, hard rock and heavy metal music fans in the U.S. That's one of our you know brands called Heavy Grass. And that's focused on that audience. There are around 40 million uh, electronic dance music fans. We've got another brand called Neon Roots. Um, that's what's the, dip- that what's the difference in the two? Can you kind of share a little bit of the difference of the two? Yeah, so the heavy grass is sort of like the Jack Daniels for weed. You know, it's flower brand. It's like, it's steady. It's consistent. It, it gets the job done, but it doesn't break the bank. You know, it's not, it's not your well drink, but it's not your like super high end either. It's that step above the, like the value brands, but it's not like, you know, sort of on the lower end of the mid tier and the higher end of the value. And then um, Neon Roots is really more about enhancing sort of the experience of going to a festival or a rave. So for that brand, we have these infused pre-rolls that are infused with THCA diamonds and batter and different terpenes that will enhance different aspects of the evening. So we have one that's for the pre-party for when it's like lift off, like I need to just kind of go. And then there's one um, that's called our up-tempo. And then we've got um, our Nero, which is like, okay, I'm at the, at the party and I just want to keep going. I don't want to get tired. Um, and I want to be able to sort of enhance everything else that's going on. And then there's the chill out, which is I get home and I just need to go to sleep. And so very different sort of approaches, you know, of like, you know, heavy grass is very much, it's like, it's like, it's just this flower products, it's, it's flower and pre-rolls. And then for neon roots, it's very much around this sort of infused pre-roll sort of optimized experience and these these products and these pre-rolls are obviously premium products right they're much more of the you know like they'll retail at like 35 or 40 dollars for one of these infused pre-rolls but they also will last all night and, and work for multiple people they're not they're definitely not single use um products you know those are for us, you know, we're going to be going out there in in each, every market that we go out and bringing these products directly as much as we can. Obviously, that's the other thing for what we do. Even to this day in California, there's very few places where you can do sales and consumption um, at music festivals. And the big issue there is the fact that they don't allow alcohol sales and consumption to be in the same place as cannabis sales and consumption, which again is like, doesn't make any sense, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. So typically the way that you have to do it is you have to do, um, you have to set up your sales and consumption either right outside the venue or you almost have, you have to have a separate entrance. So like outside lands, which is a big festival out in San Francisco, they have their, area where you have to actually go and enter in through a different, you know, way. They don't allow alcohol in there, but you can do sales consumption. So we do what we can, you know, uh, you know, we, we, and, you know, as far as the education part of it is concerned, it's tricky because when you're a brand uh, in this space, there's not huge margins right now. Right. So it's like, it's hard to put a lot of money into education as much as we would like. Um, it's like, we just kind of kind of focus on just building our brands and making sure that we kind of 
survive to live another day, you know, versus yeah. like putting a lot of money into kind of how we educate consumers. But I do feel it's a hugely important part of it. Uh, it's just, it's tough to put that burden on the brands because like we just don't have big budgets to be able to support it. What is one concept operating in the cannabis industry that would shock others to know? Oh, that's that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know how much I want to go into some of the things that are happening because um, don't want to get in anyone into trouble. Let's just say that, and I mean, you've probably already seen this in New York. There's a lot of California brands that are that are in other states right now and are in other countries right now. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening that where like people are just getting creative to figure out how to make stuff happen. And it may not be 100% cookie cutter by the book to make it happen, but it's also uh, it's filling a market need because there's a, there's, a, there's a demand for these brands and there's an interest in these brands. So yeah, look, I'd say that that's probably the, the one thing. It's like, look, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on out there right now that is uh, not exactly going by the letter of the I think when you have creative rules, you have people find creative workarounds. And I think that would surprise a lot of people. But at the end of the day, they didn't make the rules. They're just following the way the game is being played. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a player hit the game. I mean, look, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of creativity in this industry. And, you know, just sometimes like it it goes longer. Like I thought Delta 8 was going to be a flash in the pan, right? Like to me, like that was like, that's there's only a matter of time that's going to get slapped down. Same. And it's still going strong, right? Like in a lot of states, like Delta Eight is that sort of creative workaround for a lot of for a lot of brands right now. And it's been a light you know, for a lot of hemp companies too, right? I mean, so many companies just went balls to the walls and made as much CBD isolates as they could, and they turned around. And they're like, "Well, no one's buying this. What do we do with it?" And so I get it, and it's not the right way to do it but i don't like you know what i mean when you're in between a rock and a hard place you know everyone's trying to survive you know yes survival you know demand is high people want people want cannabis products so they're gonna find outlets don't say it's close enough right i mean it's close (laughs) enough if it's all you got same same but different (laughs) same same but different I mean, I don't know about you guys. My experience is like it's like it doesn't do anything for me but like for people that don't regularly smoke cannabis like from what that have tried delta they tell me that they definitely feel it. like for oh, yeah. them. so you know so i think it's the one thing that is the most interesting i think unique about like cannabis is that there's a lot of gray out there right like i wouldn't even call it like look there's deep, there's deeper shades of gray you know where <laughs> like, certainly like that you know some are more more comfortable playing in than others but a lot of the gray, it's like, it's not, it's really not black or white, right? Like whether or not something is like okay to do. And so like, it's just sort of like, if you're not doing it, then you're losing ground, right? Yeah. So like the others that are like willing to kind of put themselves out there. And I thought a lot in the early CBD days where at my last company, I kind of look back on it and say, you know what, we purposely didn't aggressively go into some of these CBD, uh, particularly the CBD ingestible products, because we knew that the FDA was going to come down hard eventually and that they weren't truly like, quote unquote, legal products. Well, it took 
the FDA about a year and a half, two years to come down. And they're coming down hard. We're like sternly worded letters. And that was it. And meanwhile, there were a lot of companies that made a lot of money selling those CBD products online aggressively, making, making health claims, making all kinds of things. And it was like, you look back on it now and say, oh, you know what? Like, kudos to them. They made, they, they made the money doing that, you know? And it was like, hey, shame on us. We could have, you know, like, and we didn't because we decided to listen to our lawyers. And, um, you know, it's like listening to your lawyers in this industry is, you know, maybe not always the, the clearest path to revenue. You should send a bill to your lawyers for revenue missed by them, right? For all their, their legal fees telling you not to. How do you connect with underserved demographics in the cannabis market in states that are not yet legal? So the way we're doing it is we're selling our non-THC products to them so that we're building brand awareness. We're building an affinity and a connection to that audience. So in some places, it may literally just be apparel, right? And like, or maybe it's accessories. Um, It's maybe it's you know, we've got these branded smoke kits that we sell that have like a grinder kind of built into them and they're little dugouts. Just whatever it is that is legal to be sold, we at least want to build that connection and that and is and make sure and obviously the products have to have utility to them and they have to connect and they have to make sense for that audience. But that's the way that we're doing it. And it's I mean, it's kind of taking a a page out of the the cookies model, right? You know, like, you know, cookies, they kind of paved the way and by going out strong with apparel and merch and stuff. And it's like, hey, they got that brand awareness and it served them, it served them very well, right? Because anytime they open up in a new state, there's lines out the door, right? You know, because they've got brand awareness. You know, whatever you want to say about like, how you feel about cookies one way or another, those guys figured out how to build a brand that that kind of worked nationally, you know, and I, I think they're the only brand that's really been able to do that so far uh, in cannabis. I agree. I would say select maybe, but I think that Kira kind of dropped the ball on scaling and getting select around the country, in my opinion. But also, that's a different story. Cookies has burner. Who does select have? Exactly. And I and think I, that is huge. I think a lot of musicians see Burner and so I've got more followers than Burner. I've got more more publicity than Burner. I can do exactly what he's done. And a lot of people have come in, bigger names, and have not been able to execute on the same level. But I mean, kudos to him. He lives the lifestyle, right? It, it is him. And, and I, I think there's some authenticity to that and some trust factors behind that. When you get a cookies product, you know what you're going to get. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with the, the way he's built his brand. Yeah, it's the fact that he came from the traditional industry. He understands the plant significantly better than probably most other C-level executives that are making kind of business-minded decisions. And the biggest thing with cookies is they don't grow anything. So the fact that they can create consistency from a quality perspective across state lines just speaks volumes to their true understanding of the plant from a procurement perspective. Because they go into new states and they handpick their partners. And they don't just handpick them willy-nilly. Werner goes in and looks at all their cultivation. He talks to the growers. He knows what they're using. So it's his deep-seated understanding of the entire industry that has been transitioned from the traditional market. And I think he's just been 
kind of the success story of utilizing of kind of like the poster child of being able to take those skills that were generated and nurtured in the traditional market and then being able to apply them into the the legal market with success. Absolutely. I mean, hey, kudos to him, man. Look, I, I took my, so I took my, I have a four, uh, voice turning 14, um, a son, and we went into Zoomies the other day and I bought him, he really wanted these cookie sweatpants and it's like cookies have a full display at Zoomies. I mean, you know, and it's like, it's crazy, right? But it's like, they've truly transcended, like, just, you know, they've created a brand, right? Yes. And that brand, to their credit, that brand means different things to different people. Like my, you know, that cookies mean something very different to my 14-year-old son. Now, granted, I didn't tell his mom what cookies was, um, but... Uh, I'd like to know how that conversation goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I told my son not to, so it's like, he's like, what's cookies? I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a weed brand. Like, oh, okay. The he's Cookie like, Monster's brand. brand. Are you seeing Sesame um, Street? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but I think that that's really the direction that, you know, more brands should be looking towards. And it's, it's a model that we're, that we're, we're very much kind of adhering to. I mean, we, we're not really a, we're not really building our brands around celebrities, you know, and I think burners are pretty unique. Like you can't really replicate a burner, right? Like, like that's like he's a unique case story because he's he was he did come he's authentically from the industry from many 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 years he authentically knows the plant and he is also a musician right it's like that's a pretty there's really like i think there's one of them in the world probably that, <laughs> that really could have done what he did and kudos to him he did it but what i think what we're doing is we're focused very much on these lifestyles that there's no reason why you, you shouldn't be able to find like neon roots, like peril and zoomies one day. Right. Like, because it kind of stands for the cannabis culture of the rave scene. Like if we've done our job correctly, that's what we're, we're going to, you know, what we're going to have achieved. So, um, you know, and I think that that's kind of what we aspire to. So like, I'm like, I'm thrilled. Like, I know there's a lot of haters out there, but like, I am, I'm thrilled for the success of cookies because to me, it shows that um, it's possible, right? To have yes. national success in yes. the cannabis brand. Yeah, proof of concept. 20 exactly. years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that in the cannabis industry. What is that? Well, barbaric. I don't know about barbaric, but I mean, I just think that at some point we're going to look back and just say like, like how crazy was it that literally we couldn't promote our products on social media or on, you know, just like we can't, we can't talk openly about this plant, right? Is like, to me, it's bar. I guess I would consider it barbaric because it's like, there are so many like useful benefits to this plant that, by withholding this information, we're kind of playing into the fact that, you know, that we're playing into the misinformation, right? By making it banned information for us not being able to kind of treat it the way that it should be treated treated as a product, as a plant, 
we're basically buying into the stereotypes because like, oh, there must be something wrong with it because, you know, you can't talk about it, you know, openly and you can't. And I've seen it and like, there's been a, been a huge mind shift, right? With the older generations, right? Because they started to now understand the medicinal benefits of it. And I can speak to my parents, like who were very anti, but have completely changed because they've seen either for themselves or their, uh, their peers ways that cannabis has helped them get off of other pharmaceuticals, right? Or other things that are just like so much worse for you, right? It's like, oh, it's plant-based and that I can take this for my arthritis versus like taking this like nasty pharmaceutical. Um, but there's still the stigmas, you know? And so to me, like this whole thing about the stigmas that we're playing into still, that's something that we'll look back in 20 years and, and, Hopefully my 14 year old son will be like, what do you mean? You couldn't like, you couldn't talk about what you were doing, you know, with cannabis, like on your social media profile. That's crazy, you know? And I hope we can get over this sooner rather than later. Cause it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of crazy, ridiculous to me that it's still going on this way. All right, Keith, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? The thing that I've learned, it's like always be curious, you know, always want to learn more because the world is always changing. It's going to continue to change. And the people that I find that are the most miserable in life are the ones that are always bitching and moaning about how things are changing. So embrace the change, embrace the chaos, because that's how you're going to fully enjoy life. And that's how you're going to ultimately, I think, be able to get ahead. Because the the people that are adaptable are the ones that are the ones that are going to reap the benefits of the changes that happen. All right. Prediction time. Keith, do brands outside of cookies travel? If not, how will they travel and when? Definitely brands outside of cookies will travel. Do they travel now? I will predict that over the next 12 to 24 months, we will see other brands that will travel. And I think that that accelerates significantly if we get any level of federal relief at all, even if it's just something like State Banking Act or just something that just starts to sort of un- unlock. Because the biggest challenge that brands like mine have right now is that we're capital constrained. Like, I can't, because cookies has like such a head start, like they can go out and go into these other states where it's it's very challenging for brands like ours to go out state by state without raising a lot of money. And it's impossible to raise a lot of money right now for cannabis. Like I don't care what I don't care where you sit in the in out there, unless you're in maybe the top one percent of companies, like you're not you're not really raising significant capital right now. Kellen. I do think brands travel, so I agree. Um, I think I'm thinking of Wild, W Y L D, right? The gummies. I mean, I think that was the first brand that traveled it from my perception. I saw that brand across state lines fought way before I saw cookies. But then I think cookies is more of a representative of the cannabis space. Um, but I think that in the next five years, um, keep touched on this earlier in the conversation. A lot of like the brands right now have tried to kind of like hook their wagon to that like stereotypical cannabis persona. And I think that that's slowly going to change. And like, as you see cookies with their apparel, I think that there's going to be really, really strong brands that come out that 
differentiate the branding from kind of the cannabis culture in a way that resonates with that other 90% where people feel comfortable going in and purchasing it. And it doesn't scream, I'm a stoner and I smoke weed all the time kind of a situation. So I think that it just is kind of a balancing act. And I don't know if the brands out there have gotten it right. And they just haven't been able to get that kind of large exposure yet because of the capital constraints that Keith keep mentioned. But I do think that brands will travel. I think there are a couple of brands that traveled. And I do think that in the future, it's going to be brands that kind of have that lifestyle aspect that's going to travel the best, in my opinion. What do you think, Brian? I do not think brands will travel. I think that unless we have a Kardashian-like person enter the space and absolutely disrupt it or some sort of federal legislation that allows for that, I don't think brands will travel. I think that consumers will find a product early on in their market that they like, and I think they will repeat it, purchase over and over again for the end of time. I think I'm thinking specifically about the older generation who is a little more hesitant and then finally finds a product that suits their needs. I see them sticking in forever and not changing again. I would say maybe for the younger generation, uh, the the Gen Zs, maybe that would be a a different version. But I'm thinking more about the older, the older, let's say 30 and up person. And I would say that I do not think brands will travel, um, at least in the future. Oh, yeah, take the other side, right? Yeah, I went for it. I went for it. So, Keith, <laughs> Keith, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more. Where can they find you? So, um, at, I'm Keith at uh, engagerbrands.com is my email. Um, and then my, I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's sort of my main social media profile. You can always uh, reach out to me there. Uh, just look, just search me uh, there. And then in engagerbrands.com you can also use that to find um our, all of our brands from there whether it be heavy grass or neon roots we'll link anywhere any place that they can uh come see you guys you guys do any events recently yeah so we will be at the aftershock festival in sacramento for four days there's not going to be 140,000 people there over four days it's a huge event uh, one of the biggest rock shows we activate every year there for uh, heavy grass. So if you're there, please come by. We'll be in what's called the Loud Lounge, which the is where days? they do their cannabis. It's October 6th through the 9th. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link those up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.